Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, we've been making our way through the book of Jonah, and before I pray and we um, get into the Bible this morning, I just want to read um, a good chunk of chapter 3 and 4 to help kind of orient us to what's going on in the story, okay? Here it is. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and, and satin ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, a plant and made it come up over jo Jonah that he might shade over that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, what an epic story. Um, I am continually amazed at how you placed within this book such compelling narratives, the kind that make for great movies or the kind that captivate the imagination, the kind that draw us in 
to learn in beautiful ways who you are and how you work in our world. And so I pray today that you would give me strength, that you would give me insight, even here as I speak, and that you would um, grant grace such that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, and that you would build up your people, for you are our rock and our redeemer, in whom we pray. Amen. And so recently I sat with a friend who is sort of stuck in a rut of behavior. Um, He kind of can't get out of the thing that he's wrestling with. And we're talking back and forth about what's going on in his life. And all of a sudden he sort of breaks in and he's like, you know, I, I just don't get it. I mean, I don't understand how it works. Like, does God change me or like, is it all on me to do? Like, how does it, I, I feel like I'm, I'm ready for God to work, but it doesn't seem to be going away. Is it really God and his grace, or is it all me? You know, I've had that conversation actually quite a few times. It's one of my favorite ones as like a pastor and as a minister to, to have with people and help them wrestle out who God is and who they are. Um, and I sort of lost count, but there are, is a conversation that I, I count every time that I have. And it's the kind of conversation that screams why. Um, It's the conversation where someone either verbally or um, internally says, why, God? Why are you doing this? Why will you not stop this? Why don't you answer me? I've had the conversation with tears streaming down my wife's face with her, and I've had it with some of you, and I remember them. And then there's the all-too-common conversation where someone stops asking questions, right? So um, it appears that the circumstances before them or the person that they're in relationship with or themselves like just seemingly will not change. And so, of course, they finally resign to the conclusion that it is what it is, right? Maybe you've said those words. Maybe you've heard those words come from another. It is what it is. And whenever someone says those words... It just, it just doesn't have quite the roll off the tongue as the song, right? It doesn't, right? So, um, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, right? The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. You guys, do you know that one? I'm waiting for my call up. Hey! I mean, I, Terry, I'm waiting for my call up to the team, you know, like I've been working. It just doesn't have that kind of poetic ring to it, you know, like it doesn't, it's, it's just sort of like it is what it is, you know. But what does this have to do with Jonah? Well, the interesting thing about Jonah is there are a number of themes that run through that connect with Jonah and then sort of roll out into the heart of the scriptures as a whole. And this is one of them. And if you look at the beginning of chapter one and then sort of follow it through to the end of the book, you'll see it pretty clearly. Let me show you it in the beginning. This is chapter one, verse 14. And Jonah's on the boat, remember? And God has hurled a storm upon the sailors. And then the sailors are about to hurl Jonah into the sea. And so they say, 
call, they call out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for the man's life, for Jonah's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. As it pleased you. You know, when we have those conversations like I was talking about, doesn't that phrase start to bug you? I mean, like, what gives God the right to do as he pleases? I mean, how are we supposed to trust a God who does whatever he wants? How are, isn't there something that we can appeal to? Is there like a court of appeals for God? Or like, a, is there like Jesus on trial? Can we question the authority, the goodness, the control of God? Like, the tension that we feel in those moments is a tension that Jonah felt as well. And it's a tension that leads us to ask a question that a lot of people have asked. And it's a question that only resolves as we press in deeper into Scripture, not as we sort of pick a piece here and there and sort of re resign ourselves to skepticism. It, it, it resolves as we press in and actually ask the question, does God change? Does God change? So let's take a closer look at Jonah 3 and 4 this morning and wrestle with that question. And I'm convinced that this chapter and a half or so sheds light on one of the biggest questions that we could ask in our human existence, one that's asked consistently by committed Christians, if you're here this morning and you've asked it, and one that's asked by those continuing as skeptics of the faith. And wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, um, you're welcome here to engage in this word. And I believe the Lord has a word for you this morning. So let's pick it up in verse 6 where I read. The word reached the king of Nineveh. The word, of course, is Jonah's charge and the great sermon that he's been preaching around Nineveh. God sent him to Nineveh, and he sort of rolls up and starts talking in town squares and proclaiming, in 40 days, this will be overthrown. Disaster is coming. And so finally, the word sort of reaches all the way up to the king of Nineveh. And listen, you got to realize the oddity of this. Like, this is not the age of, like, social uprising and, like, Twitter and media creating this massive crowd effect with pressure upon governments not happening. Top down is the way things went then. And here we have a movement bottom up, all the way to the king of Nineveh, who then from his high seat goes low. He arises from his throne, removes his robe, covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, and then he issues a proclamation to intensify it. He publishes throughout the city saying, by the decree of the king and his nobles, the, the word actually means his great ones. Greatness is one of the themes throughout this book. The word here for nobles is repeated constantly in the book. Greatness is what Jonah is, is interested in. And then he says, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands, because Nineveh was a violent place. 
probably there, but especially in the way they related to other people surrounding them. They were conquering and they were merciless. They were brutal. And the king knows it. Turn from your evil and violent ways. Call out mightily to God because who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows is a pointer to earlier in the passage. And this is one of the things that I shared with you last week. If you look at verse four, where Jonah comes and he preaches his message saying, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown is a key word in these couple chapters. Overthrown here is the Hebrew word hapak. It's the word that for the Ninevites means one thing, annihilation, complete undoing, overturning and destruction. That's all they can conceive of it to mean. You will be undone and overthrown. That's why he says, who knows? I mean, maybe God will stop if we cry out. But Jonah actually knows. Jonah knows, of course, because he's written it here, but Hebrew is his language, and that word has a double meaning. Because not only can it mean to overthrow and overturn, it can mean to turn around. And to Jonah's great surprise, the entirety of Nineveh turns around. Turning from their evil way, forsaking their patterns of destruction, and crying out mightily with devotion and with humility to the living God. He is blown away. And as we'll see, he's angry. That's a key word. And here's another one. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands. And God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. Repeated, I think, five times in the span of a few verses here is this word to turn, which maybe in your Bible is repent um, or is to change. It is a word that means just that. It means to turn around it means to change your pattern of behavior. It means to correct and go another way. And the Ninevites turn and repent. But there's a third word here. And if you look carefully, you'll see it repeated even in the English language. It's relent. Relent. God may turn and relent and turn. And then, of course, God sees their turning and he chooses to relent from the disaster that he said he would do. Relent is the word nacham, nacham, I think is how you say it. It's the best I can pronounce Hebrew. Um, but he says, in this moment, nacham, relent, and it also has a variety of meanings. Jonah is this sort of brilliant writer playing off words and trying to make a point. And relent is a fitting one, right? Because what God is doing here is, of course, he is not bringing the disaster that he has said he would do. But, but what, what you see here is they're hoping, the Ninevites are hoping that God would have compassion on them. That God 
would be warmed in hearts and would show them mercy. That's their hope. And that's actually one of the meanings of this word. So if you read this and you think, relent, what, is, what does he mean? Well, if, God, if, if we turn and then God turns from what he's said he will do, then maybe he will have compassion on us rather than pour out disaster upon us. Compassion is a good use of the word here. But there's another. A few weeks ago, um, Laura and I, my wife, and I watched this movie called About Time. Um, it's actually a pretty good show, and um, there's a scene near the end of the movie where the husband is helping the wife try on clothes because she's got this big event that she's about to go to. And listen, if that's all you know about the movie, about time might be sort of like a fitting name from the guy's perspective, but like she comes out over and over and over with these outfits, and he's like, he's of course forced to comment on them. And so um, if you're a single dude, um, or even if you're married, like, let me just give you a little bit of advice. Do not change your mind. Like, don't let her, don't let her come out and be like, yeah, that, that one's bad, and then say it's good, or that one's good, and then say it's bad. Like, that is the surest way for disaster to break out upon the scene right there. I mean, I don't know, I, I've never experienced this firsthand. Uh, I've only heard. Um, but, uh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> if you change your mind in a sticky situation like that, it will not go well for you about time. But that's exactly what this word in Jonah can mean, to change your mind. And in a sticky situation, that's exactly what God does. Whoa, wait. You're, you're telling me that God can say he's going to do something and then change his mind about it? This isn't the way it works. That's not fair. That's not right. This is exactly what Jonah says, right? If you read through, but it displeased him exceedingly. Jonah is mad. He's angry. And then, of course, he prays again to the Lord. This time, I think, maybe with his whole heart. Um, he prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, this is what I said when I was yet in my country. Right? This is why I fled 2,500 miles to Tarshish, away from the place that you told me, because I knew. I knew you're gracious. I knew that you're merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love, that if they turned, you would relent and I want you to overthrow. Therefore, let me die, he says. And God says, do you do well to be angry? Now listen, just a, a moment about anger, right? If you never feel any anger, you are not fully alive. Like, you are not fully human. There is something about anger that is human. Jesus felt anger when he lived and walked the earth. There is something healthy about expressing anger. Now listen, if you only feel anger or consistently feel anger all the time, you are not fully in control, all right? And I wish, I wish I had time to go and talk more about emotions, right? But listen, anger is fitting. Jonah is upset, and it's going to be productive in the end, okay? What Jonah says in, the, in the, his fish prayer 
salvation belongs to the Lord, is now nowhere to be found. His heart is on his sleeve, and here he is, angry with God, showing the emotional maturity of, or immaturity, of the average millennial, right? We don't know about Gen Z yet, but, but for the millennials, right? Emotional maturity is kind of, we're, we're working on it. But here's Jonah, a man of our own time, and he's helping us see something breathtaking about God. Because both senses of the word nacham are at play. That God has compassion and that he changes his mind. This is the astounding truth of Jonah that echoes throughout the rest of the pages of scripture that God is unchanging, but he changes his mind. God is unchanging but he changes his mind. The character of God is unchanging. His love and his compassion, his power and his control, his purity and holiness, his goodness and grace, those things are all unchanging, right? Even if you look at his sovereignty, a word that of course means his supreme rule, his authority and control over everything, you see it all over the book of Jonah, right? He's the one who appoints the storm to take over the boat. He's the one who calms the storm after they throw Jonah into the the, the water. And then he's the one who says, hey, fish, go and eat that guy. And then he's the one, of course, who says, ah, spit that guy out onto dry land. God is the one who appoints the plant to grow. God is the one who says, worm, will you eat it? God is the one who sends the wind upon Jonah. God is in control all the way through the entirety of the book of Jonah. He's unchanging in his sovereignty, but he changes his mind. The biblical record shows a clear picture of a God who, when met with the prayers, the pursuit, the repentance of his people, when God's people sincerely repent, God in his compassion relents. He changes his mind. What you see here is not a picture of a distant, fatalistic, autocratic God, but a dynamic, present, compassionate Lord. Pastor Leonce Crump says it better than I ever could. He says, God is unchanging. God's character is unchanging. God's nature is unchanging. His mind is not unchangeable. He has always promised to relent when met with repentance, which is consistent with his unchanging character. When God is fully omniscient, God is fully omniscient, he knows all. God is fully consistent, he only does good. God is fully sovereign, he's the supreme ruler in control of all. But God changes his mind about how time will unfold when met with the prayers in pursuit of his people. Now listen, this is not an answer to all of the pain and all of the suffering in our world, but it is a very crucial piece to understand about how God works. And it is the story of our church thus far. 
Like we, if we were emboldened to tell testimonies up here, we would tell stories of healing. We would tell stories of hope. We would tell stories of God answering prayers for housing when we didn't know where people would live. We would tell stories of God supplying strength and courage. We would tell stories of God breathing hope when people have seemed underwater and being dragged down to the depths. We would tell story after story of God showing up and responding in time to the prayers and the pursuit of his people. God has been at work among us, church. We can celebrate that, that God is unchanging, but he changes his mind. And listen, if you don't believe me, the big idea of Jonah is also the big idea of Jesus. Right? Jonah, of course, takes an arrow straight to Jesus. And I think in our age, more than any other, we need to recover what Jesus and what Jonah help us understand about the nature of God, right? We have bought the lie about authority. We have, we have seen the spin of authority and the corruption of authority such that we can't even anymore see God as an authority. But he is so dynamic and so good and so present in his sovereign rule that we must recover it. We must recover it. Jesus, of course, in his time was pressed upon by the crowds and was always being pushed to do something to display your power. And you can see the parallel to Jonah, of course, right? Jonah is so mad that God won't show up in judgment, that he won't powerfully decide against the people of Nineveh. But God chooses not to deal with them in that way. And Jesus chooses not to deal with the crowds in his day that way. When they press him and press him for, the, for a display of power, for a sign to show the truth of who he is, he says, no, 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 no. Only the sign of Jonah will be given to this generation. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so Jesus, the Son of Man, would be three days in the earth and three nights, and then would come up from the grave in all power, showing clearly the control of God, showing clearly that God is dynamic, that he will respond to the repentance offered by his people, showing that God is benevolent, so good that he would go to the cross and into the grave, and showing that he is free, free as the ruler of all things, even life and death. Jesus shows the same thing as Jonah. Now listen, I want to preach all day, but I want to go back and look at a few of these characteristics of God's sovereignty with you. And then we'll close out. Somebody say dynamic. Dynamic. God is dynamic. He's not static. God is at work and he is responsive. God is above time. God is beyond time. Yet God chooses to deal with us in time. Look at the way that the Old Testament helps us to understand this truth. This is Hosea chapter 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed or recoils. That's our word for overturn within me. And all of my compassion, that's our word for relent, is aroused. 
I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. Or look about Jeremiah, if you want to be crystal clear. This is Jeremiah 18. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare among a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and I will plant it, and if it does evil in my sight and does not listen to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have chosen to do to it. Or Ezekiel 18. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the sovereign Lord. Repent, same word to turn, and live. Or Micah 7. Who is God like you? pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because, why? He delights in love, in steadfast love. Friends, because God in his sovereignty is dynamic, we must not be fatalistic We must not pretend that high belief in God's sovereignty means we say it is what it is. When God has shown throughout history and even in our own story that he loves to respond to us, we must not say whatever will be, will be. When God, warmed by compassion, moves to deliver, moves to heal, moves to free, even to pardon God is a God who responds to his people. Not only does Jonah show us that God is dynamic in his sovereignty, Jonah shows us that the Lord is present. Present as well. Somebody say present. Present. God is present in his sovereignty. Presence is, of course, one of the themes in the book of Jonah. Jonah seeks to flee, to run away from the presence of the Lord, but he can't, right? He runs all the way geographically across the sea. He even goes down to the depths of the sea and he can't get past God. It's like, I, can't, I just want to close him out. I want to box him away and I can't get beyond the presence of the Lord. God shows up to him in the belly of the fish. God shows up to him again on the shore, God shows up to him in Jerusalem. God shows up to him in Nineveh. God is available to Jonah. He's present. The one who controls everything, who can say, plant, would you come up overnight? Worm, would you attack and destroy that plant? Is willing to have a conversation with Jonah. Is willing to deal with you and with me. I want to show you a Venn diagram from a master theologian. This guy's name is John Frame. And in talking about the lordship or the sovereignty of Jesus, he speaks of control, authority, and presence woven together as central to seeing God as the Lord. And where you have only control and authority but no presence, you have what? A distant ruler, a landlord not there. Where you have control and presence, but no authority, you have this puppeteer 
who has no right to be doing what he's doing, but is doing it anyway, controlling and clamping down upon you. And where you have presence and authority, but no control, you have a God without power to change anything. A lame duck. But authority, presence, control, woven together, make up the very powerful, sovereign God of the scriptures. And the present, friends, is the place of freedom. If you think about it in your own life, whenever your mind goes to the future, you realize you can't actually change the future. It's still there unless you enter back into the presence and do some things to sort of work towards there. Or if your mind goes into the past and cycles over and over, you can't quite change it, can you? No matter how you spin it or how you work it, it doesn't, there's no freedom of choice there. But in the present, you can choose. And God, entering into the very present of our lives, operates with a kind of freedom to do what he pleases. A kind of freedom to change things. Now, he is not like the Ninevites who turn from their evil ways. God is, is very different. He, he is not inconsistent like us, but consistent in his character and compassion. So if in the present he changes his mind, it's a matter of consistency, not inconsistency. It's a matter of freedom and choice, not compulsion. God is free to work and move. But if we're honest, our desire for freedom is very big. There is perhaps no greater desire that marks our culture than to be free. We long so much for freedom that we do anything we can to guard it. In fact, we want everyone to be free. I mean, except so long as their freedom doesn't sort of infringe upon our freedom. Then we don't want them to be free. But like when someone else's freedom starts to press in upon our freedom, then you want to know what happens? we begin to sort of separate our spheres of freedom. And perhaps the polarization in our own society at present is because we long for freedom so intensely that we will create a community in which our own definitions of freedom are intact and they don't ever conflict so that we can be free. Sort of. But if our greatest value is freedom in our own spheres, I mean, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem fitting that maybe we should let God be free in his sphere? I mean, that, that would be like Minnesota nice at least, right? But God, his sphere is what? Every corner of creation and every facet of existence. And it does infringe upon ours only so far as to help us see the way to true freedom rather than our own notions of freedom, to true life in the fullest rather than our own versions of reality. Listen, because the sovereign God is present, not distant, we friends cannot be apathetic towards him. And if you're here this morning and one of the constant struggles for you is you feel apathy in relationship with God, let me encourage you that you are so not beyond his presence. If your faith is on the back shelf, 
If your understanding and desire for a relationship with God is down in the depths of the sea, you are not beyond the presence of God, and you are not so far as to have God, who is a present help in time of trouble, help you along the way encourage you, embolden you where you feel weak, such that you might pursue the Lord, that you might know the Lord, that you might walk with the Lord rather than sit in an apathy towards him. God is present, and he's inviting you here and now to seek him, to walk with him. But God's not merely dynamic and present. He is benevolent. He's good, not capricious, not autocratic, not selfish. I mean, creation itself is a testament to the sort of overflowing and giving nature of God. Everything that we see is spilled out from his creative mind and will. God is good. And if you and I were to operate in a world and do all that we please, I mean, we probably would make pretty poor friends kind of bad spouses, and don't even get me started about parenting. Like, we, if we only did what, what, parenting exists to help you learn how to not do what you please all the time, right? Like, there is a sacrifice there that you must embrace. We cannot always do as we please. But when God does as he please, pleases, it's good. Because he is fully benevolent and good. And the kind of control that God has over the course of history and over all of reality is a source not of fear, but of comfort for the Christian. Not a constant press towards anxiety, but the freedom to actually let go. Because he's good. I mean, God himself, of course, is the upside down king who gets off the throne and comes to deal with us. He is good thoroughly. And because he is good, what we see in Jonah is that we also have the freedom to wrestle with him, to, to let our angst be known, to cry out, to question. Jonah's an example for us that wearing our heart on our sleeve, at least with the Lord, is a very good thing that he's willing to meet us in those places. But not only can we wrestle with God because of his great benevolence, but we can return to God because of his goodness. That we can, like the people of Nineveh, always come back. That we can cry out, that we can amend our ways, however evil or however selfish they may be. We can turn to him and we can trust that the living God meets our sincere repentance with compassion. He will, he will relent. God is dynamic, He is present. He is benevolent in his sovereignty. He's not stoic. He's not static. He loves us and he deals in time with us. May that picture of God carry you forward this week. 
There are a myriad of ways that could apply into your own life right now, into the issues that you're facing, the circumstances that are around you, the questions that you still have. But may a clearer picture of God be an invitation for you to engage with the real and living God, the God of Jonah, and the God whom the Lord Jesus has made known in full. pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word and how it moves us to see you clearly. And it should move us to respond to you consistently. You're here. Work in this room, despite the snowstorm outside, in the midst of the storms on the inside, in our lives and hearts. You love us and you are good to us, and you are in control. Continue to make ways for us. When our backs are against the wall, when our emotions are our full voice, continue to deal with us patiently, with mercy. For Lord, you are a gracious and merciful God. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and you have compassion, relenting from disaster. Amen. I want to invite the worship team to go ahead and make their way